Hey, South Bend City Church, Mariah here, the Director of Art and Worship. We're so thankful that you chose to listen today and even more grateful that you're a part of our community. This weekend, as we entered Lent and returned to the Apostles' Creed, we asked, what is Pilate doing in this story? And how do we find ourselves in this story with him? At the end of the teaching this weekend, Jason led us into the Eucharist practice. Also known as communion, this is a practice that we're going to engage in every week leading up to Holy Week. And so if you would like to join us when we get there, please have some sort of bread or cracker and juice or wine close by. Before we get to all of that, you'll hear some updates and some things happening in the life of our community together. One of those things is new to South Bend City Church tables. This is an opportunity for those that consider themselves to be new to South Bend City Church to get to meet some of the staff, to ask some questions about who we are and why we do what we do, and a chance to meet others who also call South Bend City Church home. There's some in-person options available, but the one that I specifically want to point out to you, those that listen to the podcast, is the digital version of this event. It'll happen on Monday, March 6th at 8.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Go ahead and jump down into the show notes below to RSVP to let us know that you're coming, and we'll send the Zoom link after you do so. In addition to the new to South Bend City Church digital table RSVP, all other announcements that Lynn references in the coming minutes, all of the links that you need for those things are in the show notes below. All right, South Bend City Church, so thankful that you're choosing to join us today. Let's jump in with the rest of our community now. Good morning. Good morning and welcome to South Bend City Church and welcome to those listening to the podcast later on this week a place of grace and peace for our community and for the world. And as we are busy together living out the ideas represented in our mantras, practices, not performances, means that we are all working this out together, right? We're in it together. Our lives, our church experience do not have to be a performance. And while we are blessed to enjoy the beautiful gifts that the band just shared with us, even they see that as a way to work out their faith together. Um, so this is an important time of the church year. We call it Lent, part of our rooted faith. It's also an important time of year because college basketball. <laughs> so I just want to check on my Purdue people in the room. <laughs> Are you okay? You okay? And Indiana, let's keep it appropriately humble because it's not March yet. Okay. <laughs> Full disclosure, my name is Lynn, and I went to undergrad at the University of Illinois, and we have a very complicated relationship with college athletics, so um, <clears throat> you're in good company. Um, I, my name is Lynn. I'm privileged to work alongside the staff here as I volunteer my time on special projects like the website and some long-term vision things that we're doing together. Um, and so I'm just really delighted to have the opportunity to welcome you this morning. I do want to share with you a few announcements. Just one thing that's particular for today, if you happen to be here for the food, fun, faith, fellowship, fantasy, football, no, no, it's, it's only three. If you happen to be here for the food, fun, and fellowship event, it's just going to be up in the mezzanine right after the second service, so you can head up there. Um, but we do have uh, three things I want to mention. One is everything that happens here um, is a result of the generosity of those who give, and that means you. And there are a couple ways you can do that. You can go online to the website. Super easy to do that. That's the way my husband and I do that. In fact, we have like an automatic thing set up. So um, it just happens every month. 
And then the other way is we have some collection boxes that are in the foyer as you leave today. So if that's something that's meaningful for you as a way to participate in the life of the church, we welcome that, obviously. Um, and then a couple other announcements. One is something that's been happening here is new to South Bend City Church tables. And we've had a couple so far, or one so far, and another one coming up in March. It's full already. We keep them small um, so people have a chance to get to know each other around the table. So we've scheduled another in-person one for April 2nd. You can sign up on the website. It's right after the second gathering. If you're feeling new here and you'd like to connect with others who are and maybe meet the staff, those kinds of things. There's also a digital one coming up on Monday night, March 6th. So if you're more comfortable in a digital environment or if you're listening to the podcast, you don't live locally and you'd like to connect, we welcome you to that too. And then as I mentioned, we are in an important time of the church year called Lent as we lead up to Easter. We just had a service on Wednesday, Ash Wednesday. Maybe some of you were here. And we are looking ahead to Friday, April 2nd, there will be a Good Friday gathering here. It will be at noon in this room, and you're welcome. We won't have childcare or kids ministry at that time, but your kids are welcome to join us. So as we get ready to experience Lent together, this is the first Sunday in that time, we're gonna welcome Jay up. Pastor Jason Miller is gonna share with us this morning. Thank you, Lynn. Good morning. How are we doing? Good. Uh, it is Lent. Uh, also, last week I preached for over an hour. We're not doing that today. <laughs> I'll offer a brief teaching, but the centerpiece of our gathering uh, will be the, the table that we call Eucharist. And so we'll look forward to that. Uh, I know you may not have been with us for this practice in the past, or you may have your own experience with it, or it might be totally unfamiliar. We always want to clarify briefly how it is that we come to that table, just so you know how this community approaches it. First of all, you may wonder if, if this practice is for you. And for South and City Church, we take our cue from Jesus. And what we see there is that anybody who wants to be at the table with Jesus is profoundly welcome there. So that's it for us. If you want to be at the table, we would love to welcome you there. Uh, frankly, we don't really care about what you believe or don't believe in terms of whether you're welcome there. We don't care about whether you've had a, a week that you're really proud of or, or not. We don't come to the table worthy. We just come to the table welcome and receive what we receive there. So we'd love to welcome you there. So that'll be our practice in just a moment before I preach a very brief sermon. Uh, it's the beginning of Lent, and we're gonna pick up with a conversation that we started way back in September. However, if you're like me, you typically need like the previously on when you're binging a show because it's been a little while, and it's been quite a while since we started a series that we called Old Creed, New World. And I just wanna remind you where we've been and why this matters. So uh, for almost 2,000 years, going back as early as maybe like the 300s or 400s, followers of Jesus have had not just the scriptures, but they've had this little summary that they've carried around with them that helps them remember and understand what this big complicated story is all about. And we wanna root our community in that story and simultaneously ask new questions about it, which is why we've called this Old Creed, New World. And I think what we found through the fall was that these old statements about the story that we trust in fact, have a lot of very kind of relevant, urgent, modern things to say to us if we just work with them a little bit, which is why we're calling it Old Creed, New World. Let me remind you what that creed has already said to us. It begins with these words, we believe, and we made a couple of basic observations. One, that in the earliest iterations of the creed, the Christians wouldn't say, I believe, they would say, we believe. 
it seems that they understood something we forgot in the modern world, which is that belief is something we carry together. And I find that to be incredibly relieving. Because <laughs> there are days when I feel full of belief and there are days when I don't. And the creed isn't asking you, this is quoting a particular theologian named uh, Yaroslav Pelikan, very legitimate theologian, who says, the creed's not like quizzing you individually, personally, saying, at, you know, 11.31 a.m. this Sunday, do you mentally believe all of these things on this list? Rather, the creed's saying, are you a part of a community of people who are learning to trust this story? Do you, do you identify with the family that says, this is the story that we are a part of? So we say we, not I, and then believe, which can sound a lot like head content, like what's all the mental furniture and how is it arranged up here in your brain, right? But we also observe that in the original language of the creed, in the Latin, the word credo probably means something closer to, I give my heart. Another way of rendering this is, we beloved. Like we give our love to this story, to the God that this story is telling us about. This is heart, emotions, will, body, brain, all of that. This isn't whether you can pass the theology exam. This is whether you are learning to trust the God that the creed is narrating for us, right? And then the creed goes on to talk about that God. It says, we believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, which is the beautiful and wonderful news that all of the good that you see in the world, all the beauty that you see in the world, Everything good about your own life, the fact that you are here, is not just accidental, it's intended. It's given, it's not simply there. Every time you bump into something beautiful or good, you're bumping into a gift that was given, which implies some things about the giver and the generosity of that source, right? We say God is Father, and we talked about how complicated that can be, but the good news there is that God relates to this world and to you and me like a loving parent, not like aloof, disinterested, or far removed, but quite concerned with your flourishing, with your well-being, and probably quite concerned with how the siblings, that's you and me and all of our neighbors, how we're getting along, right? The creed goes on, next line, it takes all that big expansive language about a creator and it drops it all down into the particularity of Jesus' life. And we've wrestled through that and you can go back and hear those teachings there. Jesus Christ, Christ comes from the, the Hebrew idea of a Messiah. It reminds us that this whole story is located in the particularity of the Jewish people and their history and their experiences of God. Only son, that's actually Roman imperial language. Again, we already taught that. Go back and listen to it. But it also locates the story in the political context of Jesus' day. And then our Lord, that's an invitation to say, this is also my story. This is also your story. He's also for you. He's also walking with you. He's also calling you out. He's calling me out. This isn't just something we get to sit at a distance from. It's something that we're getting called into as participants. And then as we turn the corner into Advent last year, we heard these lines, conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. And maybe you don't remember, go back again and uh, listen to Mallory and Daniel, uh, who both taught us and helped us consider uh, the beauty and the profundity of God coming into the world through Mary's own body and the song that Mary sings about the reordering of the world that she expects when God arrives like that. So we made it that far. So far, so good, right? Great. Cool. <laughs> and then we start Lent with the next line in the creed, which speaks of Jesus and says that he suffered under Pontius Pilate. And we're going to kind of hang out with this line and the next line throughout our Lenten season. This sort of lines up with the liturgical year. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. Uh, Lent is a time for you and me to remember, to honor, to think about Jesus who dies for us. We're going to talk about that uh, throughout this season of Lent. Jesus who dies for us. It's also a time to talk about Jesus who dies with us. 
It's not just that he dies so that we don't have to, it's that he dies to show us how to, and we're gonna talk about that throughout this season. But there's this third thing that we're gonna hit today, which is Jesus, the one we kill. I know that's kind of morose uh, and a little hard-edged, but this is one of the ways that the creed invites us to think about our relationship with the story, and I'm gonna try to unpack this with you here. Jesus, the one that we kill. I'm thinking about a story from a pastor and an author I really love named Barbara Brown Taylor, affectionately known by her fans as BBT. And uh, Barbara Brown Taylor um, tells a story. I've heard her tell this a couple of times now. She was at a a gathering of fellow pastors, which if you've not been to a gathering of pastors, you're missing out on a very peculiar slice of the sociological experience of this humanity. But when pastors get together, they do things like... They, they kind of broke out into small little groups and the person leading the gathering asked all the pastors to go around in a circle with their little group and tell the group about somebody in your life who has been Jesus to you. Isn't that sweet? Isn't that just beautiful? Like somebody who's been Jesus to you. You can just picture like unicorns and cotton candy and like love and like soft pillows. Like somebody who's been Jesus to you. And so they went around and they told stories of people in their lives who were loving and encouraging. And there's one woman in the group that Barbara Brown Taylor says was silent throughout this exercise. And they they finally turned to her and the fear is, oh, maybe nobody's been Jesus to her. Poor lady, you know? And then this pastor woman, she says, well, I'm just trying to think of the last time that somebody told me the truth so straight I tried to kill him. (laughs) Which is a fair move if we're talking about how Jesus is experienced by the people around him, right? I mean, yeah, there is compassionate Jesus and loving Jesus, but then there are the ways that his compassion and love led him to a life that caused others to want to kill him. The ways that he told the truth in a way that led others to want to kill him. I want to work that out with you a little bit. Now, the creed uh, calls out Pilate. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. Who is this guy? It's kind of funny, you're reading through the creed and you have all this big theological language. God, Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, Jesus Christ, his only son. You get to Mary, that's a human being, but of course Mary for 2,000 years has also been a subject of religious devotion. You can see sacred icons that are drawn of Mary. I've yet to find an icon of Pilate. Right, with a halo behind. Like, there's nothing sacred feeling about Pilate. He's a government official who ends up in this story. He kind of intrudes in the creed in an awkward way. In fact, there's a German theologian named Karl Barth who says that Pontius Pilate enters the creed like a dog into a nice room. (laughs) Now, I know if you fill up out dogs the way that I feel about dogs, this doesn't really capture the sentiment because a dog in a nice room just makes the room better. But he's saying saying this kind of crude thing intrudes on this sacred thing when you read about Pilate and the creed. So who is he and what would he mean for us when when we talk about believing the story? Well, first of all, Pilate is a Roman governor. So we're in the part of the Roman Empire called Judea. And if you, anybody remember the name Herod from the Christmas story? Yeah. So Herod was what's called an ethnarch. Essentially, one way that the Roman Empire held together this vast empire is when they conquered a certain land with certain people in it, they would raise up a puppet king from among those people. So the Jewish people are conquered by the Romans, and they raise up Jewish kings like Herod, who are basically puppet kings from the people whose job is to govern things there. However, so there's Herod that you read about in the Jesus story, and then there's Herod's son who comes along. Herod's son is apparently such a bad ruler of his own people that his own people reach out to headquarters. They go to the Romans, they go above his head, and they say, hey, can we just have one of your people ruling us? Because Herod's not working out very well. 
So essentially what happens is the, the category of Judea gets shifted from an ethnarchy to what's known as like a full Roman province. And instead of having a Jewish puppet king ruling over them, now they have Pilate, who's a Roman magistrate, whose job is to administer this stuff. He's the fifth in a succession of magistrates who are ruling over all this stuff. Uh, what's he doing in the creed, though? Like, what do we do with this guy? This kind of weird intrusion in this sacred story. Well, um, one good way to inhabit the stories of Scripture and to think about the creed when you see like a human being besides Jesus mentioned is to say, like, well, what are, what are we supposed to see of ourselves in him? And this is where you get to the question about how it is that we kill Jesus. How do we see ourselves in, in him? He's a, a Roman official whose primary job is to maintain order in that particular province. And in the confrontation between Jesus and Pilate, Something so incompatible, something so troubling emerges that the end of the story, at least so far, is that Jesus ends up being crucified. And one way of reading this is to remember that the actual Jesus isn't always compatible with the lives that we've built and the world that we've built and the power structures that we've built. It's a good like, chance to audit our actual Jesus compared to the Jesus of Scripture and see how much like, they line up, right? Like, I think it's really easy for all of us, myself included, to come up with our own version of Jesus who's really cozy and compatible with the way things are in our lives, the way things are in our neighborhoods, the way things are in our workplaces, the way things are in our world. But Pilate reminds us that sometimes when Jesus shows up, he's not compatible with those things. Like, they just don't fit. This is really important, especially like when you live in a part of the world like we do where Christianity is often sort of like official, where a lot of people like publicly claim it and talk about it and try to leverage it even politically. It's important because if you're not careful, Jesus can end up just being a mascot for all of our prejudices or our preconceived notions rather than having his own message, his own teachings, his own life that he's actually trying to bring into the world. And Pilate reminds us that sometimes when the actual Jesus shows up, he may not be compatible with those things. And that's where like you and I end up, we can become the kind of people who just like Pilate would send him out and say like, well, that Jesus, the actual Jesus, uh, I think he needs to be ended because it just doesn't fit. Um, I remember growing up in church, every once in a while, these kind of scary sermons would be preached, um, like warning us that, you know, there might come a day where you might have to die for your faith, you know? And they would tell stories of people in other places around the world who like had a, maybe a gun to their head and were asked to renounce Jesus or to I don't know why, like I remember so often a story of like, there's like a picture of Jesus and everybody's asked to spit on him and if you don't spit on him, you're going to lose your life. And I know that that kind of persecution actually has happened and does happen around the world sometimes. I know that's true. But what I found far more often in reading history is they don't ask you to give up Jesus. They just ask you to give up the things that he was all about. A good example of this is just read the history of Germany in the 30s. They didn't ask you to give up Jesus. They just asked you to make him Aryan. You can keep your Jesus. Just give up on all the things that he's about, all the people that he cares about. Just decide that he's with you against your enemies rather than challenging you to love them. Like you, you can keep your Jesus. Just empty his life of all the actual content, all the things he was actually saying and doing. You can keep him. But if we decide that we want the actual Jesus, he might confront us a little bit. 
He might come into the palaces that we have built, not unlike Pilate's palace, and show up uh, in a way that, like, we can't make it work with the world that we are governing the way that we are governing it right now. You can work that out at every level, from the international and national to the things that happen in our homes, in our private lives, and in our neighborhoods. Uh, but Pilate, one of the gifts is he reminds us we might find ourselves in his part of the story and it just doesn't work. Now, that being said, um, if you actually read the story of the confrontation between Jesus and Pilate, it's, it's, it's kind of peculiar. I'm going to read a long text to you from John's gospel so you can actually see how it goes when Jesus and Pilate come together. And the reason I want to show you the actual text is everything I just said sounds very dramatic, doesn't it? But the actual confrontation is not dramatic. It's kind of weird and ambiguous and ultimately, it doesn't seem that Pilate saw Jesus as a major threat. It seems like something else is happening here. Let's read the text. It's long. Hang with me on it. Just observe the strange character of the actual confrontation between Jesus and Pilate. This is from John's Gospel. Uh, this is right after the people have brought Jesus to Pilate, and they want Pilate to do something with him. And Pilate's like, I don't really understand. And they say, no, you take him, and then this happens. So Pilate goes back inside the palace, and he summons Jesus, and he asks him, are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Already he's playing coy, as Jesus is prone to do, right? Am I a Jew, Pilate replied. He's like, your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you've done? Like, help me understand this. And then Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. Which, again, very frustrating, right? Jesus, like, just answer the question. <laughs> if it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. And then Jesus answered, well, you say that I'm a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth, retorted Pilate. See, Pilate's trying to play Jesus' game where you answer a question with a question, right? With this, he went out again to the Jews and he gathered there and he said, I find no basis for a charge against him. But it's your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of Passover. Do you want me to release Jesus to you, the king of the Jews? And they shouted back, no, not him, give us Barabbas. So Barabbas had, or now Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. Hold on to that detail for a moment, it matters. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. And they clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again saying, hail king of the Jews. They're being sarcastic here. Right? They slapped him in the face. And once more Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, look, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know I can find no basis for a charge against him. And when Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, here's the man, like, please take him back, right? But as soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, crucify, crucify. Again, Pilate answered, you take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. And the Jewish leaders insisted, we have a law, and according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid. He went back inside the palace. Where do you, by the way, are you getting frustrated with this dialogue yet? It's just back and forth and back and forth. Where do you come from, he asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me, Pilate said? Don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Which is kind of a baller statement at this point, right? Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jewish leaders kept shouting, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. And it was the day of the preparation of the Passover. It was about noon. 
Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priest answered. And finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. Now, I go through that long reading uh, for a couple of reasons. One, note the Barabbas thing. When it said that he was part of an uprising, this is curious. What that means is that Barabbas is in jail because he had participated in an anti-Roman riot. But curiously, Pilate, the Roman official, like, has no concern handing Barabbas back over to these people. He seems very uninvested in everything going on here, right? You would think he would at least be concerned about that. He's trying to make sure that his hands aren't dirty and killing an innocent man, but ultimately he's got to deal with the crowd. And if the crowd is unruly, that's the one problem that he really has to deal with. Because his whole job is to maintain some kind of order in this part of the kingdom. But the main reason I read all that to you is just to observe, like, Pilate doesn't seem to be some villain, like, with evil machinations against Jesus. Like, oh, I, you know, I'm really against this guy. Jesus just seems a little bit inconvenient to Pilate. Do you notice that? It's just a little inconvenience that he's trying to get rid of. And I say that because I think sometimes Jesus, if we're going to get the real Jesus, not the mascot Jesus, not the Jesus who like looks the way we want him to look, if we're going to get the real Jesus, sometimes that's a serious confrontation. And a lot of the time, it's a small inconvenience. That's actually, I think, often how it is that God sort of calls us out in the world. Like if you meet the real Jesus, if you try to understand what he said and did and what he called us to, the way that he often works with us, the way that he often leads us, the way that he drives us into the life that he's calling us to, it's often like these small interruptions, these small sort of disturbances in the status quo, right? And I don't know about you, but I have been um, so many times in my life a little bit like Pilate. Like I just kind of poke at it for a little bit. I step back from it, I question it a little bit, I throw up my hands in the air, I'm like, I just don't know, I just don't know. And then ultimately, because it's inconvenient and because it will disrupt the status quo, I just send him out. Not dramatic, not big, bloody, violent, a mild interruption in my business that shows up and I, I interrogate it for a while and I'm ambivalent for a while and then I have to ask myself, do I really be, want to be the one who sends him out. Now, um, I said that one of the gifts of having Pilate in the creed and in the scriptures is that we could remember and ask ourselves, like, how are we like him? And there's an interesting um, um, movement that happens in church history uh, after the time of the New Testament. And this comes from the Ethiopian and the Coptic churches. These are branches of the historical church that you may not be very familiar with. But they have a tradition, um, a teaching that comes after the pages of scripture that I find so curious. Uh, in Ethiopian Christianity and Coptic Christian tradition, they teach that after this story, after Jesus is crucified and resurrected, they teach that Pilate actually converted and became a Christian, and that he was then martyred for his faith. Now, it's kind of hard to historically track that. Again, this is in the sort of apocryphal teachings of these church traditions. But I love the impulse behind that. I don't know if we can prove whether that's actually what happened historically with Pilate, but I think the truth like, buried in there is that they're saying the actual guy who sent Jesus to his crucifixion, even that guy was not beyond turning around. For even that guy, like, that wasn't the end of his story. Like, there was still another chapter waiting for him where he could take a step back and realize that either in the inconvenience or, or in the brutal confrontation that Jesus brought that he got it wrong. And he has another chance to change his mind and decide that he wants to welcome that inconvenience or that severe disruption. I just, I love the, 
I don't know if it's a fact, but I know it's true. I don't know if historically it happened for Pilate, but I know it happens over and over again. Even, even the worst ways that all of us send Jesus out because he's too disruptive or inconvenient. That, that's not the end of the story for you and me. Now, there's another way uh, to read this moment in the creed and in the scriptures. You know, we started with locating ourselves where Pilate is. That's always a good start in Scripture. If you're reading the Gospels and you want, to, like, you want to really get something from them, just imagine yourself as one of the people around Jesus. Maybe you're one of the people who rejects Jesus, or you're one of the people who trusts Jesus, or maybe you're one of the people who gets chastised by Jesus, or maybe you're one of the people who gets included by Jesus. But, like, feel what it is to be in the position of those other characters. But then here's the other move, and this is also legitimate as far as I'm concerned. The other move is to also ask yourself, like, how are you Jesus in this story? Now, if, you, if that's all you ever do is ask yourself, how are you Jesus in this story? You might be a little delusional, right? You might need to get grounded, right? But if we never ask, how are we Jesus in this story, then we've forgotten what it means that we are disciples. And a first century disciple is somebody who is meant to become like their teacher and to do what their teacher did, which is probably why Jesus tells his disciples, you will go out and do greater things than I did. It's why Jesus gives his spirit to the disciples to give them the power and the inspiration and the direction and the wisdom to go out and do greater things than he did. So it's also legitimate to say, like, well, maybe I've had some experience a little bit like Jesus. At one level, if there's been a moment in your life where you realized God was at work through you, love was moving through you, the spirit was guiding you, you might have found out that you became a little inconvenient. Anybody? Come on. And this is important to name because I think it can be confusing if you don't like, stay close with the way it actually goes for Jesus. When you, when you feel that, when you sense that, when you have the, the conviction or the inclination that God is moving you in the world, that love is working through you in the world, that the Spirit is guiding you in the world, it's tempting to expect a raving reception, right? And then to be surprised to find out that you're just a little inconvenient for people, Right? It's often, it's often not like a big flashy confrontation. Maybe they just stop calling. Maybe they just kind of go cold on you. They go quiet on you. Maybe you just realize you're no longer invited into some of those spaces you used to be invited into. And they don't make a big deal out of it. And they find some ways to massage it and to nuance it. But at the end of the day, you realize you've just become a little bit inconvenient. I say that because it can then feel like you got it wrong, but it might be the case that you got it right. Now, not necessarily, by the way, it might be that you're just obnoxious. Stop it. Like it <laughs> that doesn't mean that every time people like, you know, put a boundary between them and you, it doesn't mean that you've been Jesus to them. You might have just been a jerk to them, right? So that's not what I'm saying. But sometimes when the life of God is doing its thing in you and through you, you might find that things go a little bit cold or a little bit quiet. Um, I share this next part not to center it because I don't think it's the most interesting thing in the story of our church, it's just every once in a while you ought to know that the preacher means it when they say it, right? And I'll just say, like, for me, you know, um, there's moments in our church history at South Bend City Church where we as a community have said something or taken a position on something. And um, in my own life, what I've discovered is, like, we've done those because our convictions took the, us in those directions. And then in my own life, I've discovered sometimes things just go a little bit quiet, <laughs> Uh, even l last week we preached a sermon that had some, I said some things. And, um, <laughs> and you all are so kind and caring, and a number of you have checked in on me, like, you know, are you okay? Like, are there people at your front door? Like, have you gotten, like, burned down on the internet? And the answer is mostly, no, it's just pretty quiet. <laughs> just kind of quiet, like, just, 
just stop getting all those gigs I used to get and stop getting those invitations and stop being welcome in some of those rooms, but not in any kind of like loud, nasty way, just kind of quiet. Now, I don't think my experience of that needs to be the center of everything because frankly, like what a small price for me or any of us to pay to include people who've always been excluded. So that's not a big deal. I'm not trying to center that, but I'm just saying like for a lot of us, it's often a small thing that happens. And then every once in a while, it's not. Every once in a while, it is a clash of the titans, a, a confrontation of the powers. And again, I think we have Pilate operating at all these levels here because at the end of the day, he might have been ambivalent toward Jesus. It might have been a strange conversation, but at the end of the day, he still killed him. And I think, I think that's there in the story for us to remember that like, if we are walking with Jesus, following Jesus, if the things that God was doing through God's son, God also wants to do through God's daughters and sons, if we believe all that, that I'm not saying we need to like, get defensive or hop up for a fight, but every once in a while, we probably shouldn't be surprised when there's a fairly dramatic confrontation. And that might happen in your, in your individual life, or that might happen in the world at large when Christians show up and do the things that we're called to do. Not a big fan of like, culture warrior talk. I'm not a big fan of you know, fearing the world talk, although usually it's the religious people who come after you when you're following Jesus. Um, take that with wherever, wherever you want to go with that. Um, you know, it's left off in the, the secularists and the worldly people that stand in the characters of Scripture for the people who come against God. It's, it's more often the people who claim to be defending God that we might find ourselves up against. And just because we're up against them doesn't mean that we hate them. It doesn't mean that we live with scorn for them, but it does mean that to, to follow Jesus, to like, prepare yourself for this journey means that you might occasionally need to not be surprised when a big confrontation happens and they want you gone. They want you to shut up and be done and out of the way because Jesus is inconvenient for the world that is being built the way it is being built right now. Um, I said a, a short sermon. I need to live up to that. Um, there's one other part of this line from the Creed that I want to call out right now. Let me put it on the screen for you one more time. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. There is often suffering in the collision between the world as it is and the world as God wants it to be. And people who are trying to live for the world as God wants it to be will often find themselves suffering at the hands of the world as it is right now. That happens from time to time, right? Now, I don't have all the answers worked out for why it seems that like, there's such a collision between the world as it is and the world as God wants it to be. I, we can reason together theologically about that, and that's interesting to do sometimes. Right now, I just want to observe why, how, however and why ever that's the case, the suffering that you and I experience in that collision is not foreign to God. Don't miss out on the strangeness and the beauty that right in the middle of the creed, of a, of, right in the middle of a story about God, the story speaks of the suffering of God, of the solidarity of God with us. That every dark night and long day that you have been through is an experience that's very familiar to Jesus. That any violent thing that has come against you or any abandonment 
that has left you, like these are familiar experiences to Jesus. And so if the story is meant to not just like have us sit at a distance and think thoughts about God, but meant to draw us in to our life with God in the world, this moment to me feels like a, it's like the center of God with us. So uh, we get to come to this Eucharist table. And in this meal today, as we begin our, our journey through Lent, Uh, we can come at this a few ways. One is to ask, like, how is it that we are the ones who ourselves create the circumstances of this meal, which is that we're the ones who killed Jesus? Sometimes the actual life of God is so incompatible with our own that we would rather just chase it away, right? And it's uh, wholly inappropriate for us to come to this table like open to that conviction, open to that reflection that maybe in our own lives and in the world at large, God has wanted to arrive and to work and we've said, nope, and we've sent God away. We can also come to this table today as disciples of Jesus, as those who, who walk in the very same calling and who have suffered some of the very same things. Maybe you've been a little inconvenient. <laughs> maybe you've been treated as a threat. Maybe you've suffered somehow uh, as you did your best to follow Jesus in this world. And for all of us who have those stories, this meal is a meal of solidarity. He's with us in it. And sustenance. He can sustain us through it. So I want to um, break this bread and pray for these elements. Uh, while I do that, um, I'll invite those who are going to serve you to come and join me on the stage, and then I'll serve them. And then once they've taken their place, you're free if you'd like to get up out of your seat and go to the table to receive, or when the lines are done, to raise your hand and we'll bring those elements to you. That being said, let me remind you that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, which by the way, that's the night just before the story that we just read. So the night before Jesus finds himself in this conversation with Pilate, Jesus is there with his friends and he takes a loaf of bread and he breaks it and he says, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat. And then later in that same meal, he takes a cup and he says, this is the cup of a new covenant forged in my blood. This is the love of God that will endure, the inexhaustible gift of God. And so if you, if you find yourself thirsty for that, you can come thirsty to this table and hopefully find it satisfied. Loving God, I pray that these elements would be for us, the life of Jesus given for us and for the world. I pray that we would come humbly and sober-minded, reflecting on the ways that we've found you a little inconvenient, or the ways that perhaps you've been a full-on confrontation with the way that we have ordered our lives or our world, knowing that too often in those moments we've just simply sent you out, we've rejected you, we've pushed you away. I pray too at this table that we would remember that hopeful story of Pilate. Perhaps he did turn around and perhaps we can too. And perhaps all of those earlier betrayals in our own lives are not the final word on us. For all of us who feel that, may we find ourselves restored at this table. And then for all the ways that all of us suffer in a world that's not the way that you want it to be. When specifically 
your life in us and through us makes us inconvenient, leaves us abandoned, has others who want to destroy. I pray in this meal we would find solidarity with you, that you would sustain us. More than anything, I pray this meal for us would be a taste of your love. We pray these things through Christ, and we all said, Amen. The body of Christ broken for you, and the blood of Christ shed for you. May you know the love of God this Lent. And that sometimes that love comes to us as a disruption or an inconvenience. May we be the ones this holy season who reflect on our own temptations to cast God away. When we find ourselves in the spirit of God, doing the work of God, and discover that that love and light is not always so welcome in the world around us. We find ourselves have been made an inconvenience. May we too trust that we're not alone, that the one who suffered is with us and leading us in a good and beautiful way forward. And may grace and peace be with you. Amen. Love you all. See you soon.